Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property presented by the Indiana University Mauer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Chris McMillan. I'm a 3L at Mauer, and I'm the audio editor for IP Theory. On today's episode, I'll be sitting down with 2L associate Megan Wheeler to discuss her note titled Fair Use Failing the First Amendment, How the Parody and Satire Dichotomy May Be Stunting Political Discourse. Megan was one of the three associates whose note was presumed by the journal and will be published in volume 12 next year. Megan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Megan Wheeler. I'm a 2L associate at IP, uh, for IP Theory. I'm excited to talk a little bit about my note with you. And our future uh, audio editor. So be on the lookout for her on next year's podcast. So let's go ahead and get into the questions about your note. Can you just give our listeners a quick elevator pitch for your note? What's it about? Broad strokes. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, I basically argue that while First Amendment wholeheartedly urges for freedom of robust debate and discourse over public concern, copyright creates a property interest in that speech and expression. And as it pertains to a distinction made between parody and satire, that can be problematic. Um, satire, I believe and argue, has a much stronger First Amendment value that can go ignored by the courts in lieu of these property rights. And I therefore argue that copyright infringement in satires may require an as-applied First Amendment defense um, after consideration of, a first, of its First Amendment value. So obviously you spend a lot of your note talking about satire. Can you explain what it is? I mean, our listeners perhaps would think that it's, you know, it's not too hard to define what it is, but when you really think about it and try to put it into words, it's kind of hard to define. So, you know, what is it to you? Yeah, I mean, I think even in the literary field, there's a lot of discussion about how to define it and there's not one good sentence that can kind of sum it up, but I guess to give a a kind of spark notes version of what I say in my note, it boils down to like two core, two core sort of points that it must be critical of a societal figure or norm, and it must employ an aesthetic tone of wit. Typically they are masquerading as fictional stories, but rely on a lot of non-fictional elements they can be akin to caricature or grotesque depiction of realities. Some of the most, uh, I mean, the most famous example, of course, is Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, where he suggests to uh, Parliament that in order to fix famine, we eat children. Um, But more modern versions can include anything from uh, more comedic movies like Idiocracy and Sorry to Bother You, or argumentatively, more horror-driven narratives like Parasite or Don't Look Up. Okay, and why is it so important that we protect it? It's a very effective tool for public criticism that often sticks in the minds of the listener. I go into a lot of psychology um, and societal research, sociology research, excuse me, on how listeners of satire have stronger retention for the political commentary. And so For me, I found uh, the satire First Amendment value was extremely high in some cases, particularly in some of the cases that I uh, look at in the end of my note. Yeah. So there's a subjective nature to satire, especially when it comes to defining it. So how do we create a workable definition for courts to apply? Because we need to have, you know, I do think we need to have a balance between, you know, a fluidity of definition for creatives, but we also the legal profession needs to have some kind of rules in order to apply. Yeah, absolutely. So in my note, I I think I define some sort of definitional boundaries that could be applied by the courts. And I I do try to give an example, particularly with the Andy Warhol case on how a court might analyze whether it is satire or not. 
But if I were to make a list in more simple terms, it would, of course, include criticism, the aesthetic tone of wit, as well as maybe some of the literary tools that it uses, such as uh, caricature or grotesque, juxtaposition of tone and substance, use of analogy, and um, perhaps most importantly, artist's intent for it to be a satire, because I really wanted the Andy Warhol Prince pictures to be a satire, but ultimately conclude that Warhol's intent to purely be a reproduction of something he found beautiful um, outweighed all those other factors. When we get into this kind of factors-based analysis, there's definitely a lot of judicial discretion that's going to apply. How much of a judge per, judge's personal opinion should apply when we're trying to define satire? Like you referenced Justice Stewart's famous quote on obscenity, I know it when I see it, which is a highly subjective standard, you know? You know so so what, is the, what does the judge's discretion have to play in this? I mean, ideally, we I, I don't think a judge would have to have too much discretion. I kind of threw that quote in there because I do think a lot of audiences, a lot of people know when they're encountering encountering satire, whether it's um, more tongue-in-cheek or a humorously critical sort of message about a public figure or institution or a societal norm. However, I, I do think there's there could also be evidence that judges rely on, such as, you know, um, movie critics, art critics, sort of personal statements about the work that would indicate whether it's satire or not in conjunction with the literary um, tools that I previously mentioned. So I don't know if it would necessarily require too much judicial discretion. I think judges would be able to apply it even handedly and um, have a substantial amount of evidence on whether or not it's satire. Getting to kind of the, the legal problems with satire, when an author creates a work of satire, inherently they need to reference the work being parodied in order for it to be effective, you know, but copying a protected work is copyright infringement. So we have an affirmative defense called fair use. Can you just explain that to our listeners who might not know what that is? And can you explain why satire and parody are some of like the quintessential examples of fair use? Yeah. So in my opinion, I found that parody requires uh, uh, referencing back. Satire may not, but I, I still believe that it, it should be permissive. And the reason why I don't opt for the fair use defense is because I think Campbell via Cuff Rose, they make such a strong distinction between parody and satire that has resulted in parody being almost always permissible, whereas something more satirical has not been. But yeah, fair use evaluates the, uh, the four factors, purpose and character of the use, nature of the copyright amount of and substantially of the work taken and the effect of the use upon the potential market. I do argue that I think it does, in my opinion, fit neatly into fair use, but courts obviously don't agree with me. Uh, The nature may be commercial, um, but that is typically not the purpose of a a satirical work. It's intended to criticize, and even if that means, you know, 50% of the voting public doesn't see it, then, you know, the commerciality is harmed by its own message. Uh, The nature and amount taken of the copyrighted work will obviously vary depending on the case, and that may have a substantial factor. It did in Dr. Seuss. I I don't think Dr. Seuss came out correctly. But anyway, most importantly, I don't think satire will supplant the original work in the market, which may be one of the most important factors of the the fair use test. And I argue that because an author is never going to be critical of their own works. 
For example, I don't think Dr. Seuss is ever going to be critical of the O.J. Simpson trial. So I don't think most authors recognize a derivative market of satire for their works. And ultimately, it just hasn't been recognized by the courts. So I kind of doubled down with a First Amendment as applied defense. Yeah, I'm actually kind of interested to hear about this distinction that the court made in Campbell between parody and satire. Can you explain that? Yeah, so there's a famous quote. It basically says that parody, the whole joke is the reference back to the original work, but satire doesn't necessarily require that taking in order to make the joke. So for example, this might be more of a trademark situation, but in an idiocracy, they're saying like, oh, we're watering the corn with Gatorade. You get all more, the more electrolytes. Like that may be more of a permissible, permissible use because it is a satirical joke that science is being underutilized in farming practices these days, whether or not that's true or, you know, are people trending to believe that, oh, we need GMOs in our, in our food. That's the underlying joke. And so taking of Gatorade, which everyone recognizes, in my opinion, might have more First Amendment value than, than, you know, some other works that take. Yeah. So needless to say, the focus on your paper is less on the fair use defense because courts do not tend to hold in favor of satirical use when it comes to fair use defenses. But you do focus on the First Amendment. So as a quick refresher to our listeners, First Amendment protects private citizen speech from government regulation. So how does a private individual suing another for copyright infringement raise a First Amendment defense? Can you explain that? Yeah. So the as-applied First Amendment defense argues that the law as applied to their case would violate their protections under the First Amendment. Um, Typically, this would involve situations where the application of statutes such as the Copyright Act, Lanham Act, or state statute would would impose restrictions on First Amendment rights. In my argument, I make the assumption that the First Amendment right being violated is to contribute to public discourse on matters of public concern, And um, the works that would arguably be taken would have public notoriety similar to a public figure recognized in um, uh, the New York Times case or the Gertz case. Eldred v. Ashcroft and Golan v. Holden seemingly disregard First Amendment defenses, preferring copyright safeguards of fair use. But some of the cases that I encountered had First Amendment implications that went underanalyzed by the courts. Okay, yeah. So there is some relation between the First Amendment and fair use, though. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, I mean, Eldred and Golan both emphasize very strongly that this is a wide enough safeguard for First Amendment um, uses. Uh, so I think they are certainly related, and um, fair use comes from an interest in protecting First Amendment rights. Okay, so why do we have those two defenses? Why not just have one? First Amendment defense or one fair use defense? Is there kind of a major underlying difference between the two? There's there's not. I, I think I argue for the as-applied First Amendment defense because fair use hasn't allowed for satire. Um, so I guess in some ways it would be an argument similar to Eldred and Golan, but not for ex- for an extension of term, rather for satire be recognized under fair use but obviously fair use isn't working so i'm doubling down that like if we're not going to put it in fair use it should be an as applied challenge which may or may not always 
be effective. But I think that's also part of the reason I make the argument, because perhaps some satires are more deserving of First Amendment consideration and that they are talking about political viewpoints or public figures. In recent years, the Supreme Court has taken another look at the fair use defense. Specifically in 2021, they decided the case Google versus Oracle, where you know the ramifications of that case are kind of up in the ears. You know, is it limitedly, limitedly applied to APIs or more broadly can be applied to all kinds of copyrighted works? But essentially, they signaled that the transformative nature of the work, which is part of the the economic element of fair use is, is one of the most important elements and one of the primary considerations to make when a court is considering a fair use defense. So do you think that means anything for satire? Do you think at some point we could see an expansion of fair use to cover satire through these cases and through this focus on transform the transformative nature? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope so. I'm not necessarily very optimistic because I, I, it doesn't seem like courts are applying Google versus Oracle, or don't necessarily know where it's appropriate, as you said, to apply the case. I think it was briefly mentioned in the Warhol case at the appellate level, but I know it just was, the the Warhol case was just granted cert by the Supreme Court. And so maybe I'll be proved wrong and they'll put a lot of Google versus Oracle in there. But a lot of the cases that I was seeing, which are very recent cases, have not been applying it. So I think that'll be a very important case to to watch out for. Yeah. So we've been talking about the Andy War, or we've been referencing the this Warhol case for a while now. Let's go ahead and talk a bit about it. Can you tell us what this case is about and what do you think it means for the future of satirical works? Um, this is going up on cert to the Supreme Court, so we don't know for certain yet, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. So um To kind of lay out the facts of the case, uh, I addressed it in another IP theory podcast, um, but uh, briefly, uh, Lynn Goldstein licensed use of a Prince photograph that she took to Vanity Fair, and Vanity Fair gave it to Andy Warhol to make a portrait for um, one of their covers honoring um, Prince. I think everyone was kind of believing that Warhol would only do one portrait of Prince, but of course it's Warhol. So he did um, something like 15 pictures using that reference photo. Uh, Years later, it was discovered that um, there were many of these these portraits instead of just the one. And so um, Goldstein sued the Andy Warhol Foundation um, for copyright infringement on use of that photograph. Um, They said it was not a derivative work, it was copyright infringement, and part of the analysis was the method of which he transferred the picture to the silk screens, and not a lot of First Amendment was argued at all. So a lot of art scholars believe that Andy Warhol may have been kind of covertly creating this message that uh, criticizing the public for idolizing characters or brands such as the Campbell's soup can. And that might have first like, a high First Amendment value, but ultimately he, uh, he just merely wanted to reproduce these images for the sake of reproducing them in a beautiful manner because he found them beautiful, much like a still life. Ultimately, it doesn't go in, in the way I would like it to, but uh, it would have been nice to have seen some of that consideration being had by the court. What, what's the best outcome of this case when it goes up to the Supreme Court, in your opinion? 
the best case scenario is that well, I, I have a hard time believing that they're even going to find it a satire so that I don't know if it would apply at all to the argument that I'm making. Ultimately, I think they're going to look at similar things that the second circuit did and whether it was transformative enough, whether it truly did supplant Goldstein's work in the market and kind of continue on those fair use factors without considering whether it is a parody or a satire of prints or, you know, photographs taken of prints or people idolizing prints in some way or whether Warhol merely just liked the picture and continued to copy it. My final question is about uh, the last part of your note where you're talking about a bunch of cases that, in your opinion, were should have been decided the other way. So it should have been decided in favor of the satirical work. Are there any commonalities between these cases? You know, where are judges going wrong in general, or is it kind of all up in the air? Yeah. So I think judges may not contemplate the economics that, in the way that I do of satire um, because it doesn't require a reference back, then it must be licensed or uh, something of that nature. But as I argue, I, I don't think that uh, authors would authorize that license often. And I also don't believe that a recognition that satire should be fair use or protected by a First Amendment would uh, disincentivize authors from contributing to society for those two economic reasons. I don't think courts are considering that. And perhaps they just don't see satire as useful to the public discourse as I do. Um, uh, As I stated earlier, satire is uh, extremely beneficial for the political discourse in particular. So finally, what is the most important contribution in your opinion, your note makes to this area of study? So what's the, what's the big takeaway? I have an interest in protecting artists and their works. Obviously Um, once an artist has sort of transcended a certain bounds where their works are extremely profitable and um, shared frequently I guess my uh, personal wish is that newer artists can kind of build off of those works at some point. And especially if they're making a politically charged or societally critical statement, I would like for them to not necessarily be as penalized. Yeah, awesome. So all of us here on the executive board of IP Theory really enjoyed your note and we're very excited to publish it in volume 12 next year. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at CIPR, Mauer IPTH, or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next week.